Guys, we're in uh, Micah, which is an 8th century prophet written during the time of the Assyrian invasions in the northern kingdom and now threatening the southern kingdom. And during this time, some very, very interesting and helpful things were happening that can be applied to our own day. We've seen that uh, God sees and judges his people's wicked influences and their wicked intentions. So he sees the influences that are upon us that we allow to shape our lives. Get that. We allow those influences to shape our lives. He sees that. We saw that in chapter 1. And last week we began chapter 2. God sees and judges his people's wicked intentions. So there's, going to, there's judgment and then salvation, as usual, in the cycle of the prophet's teaching. And we talked about crooked businessmen. Spent most of our time on that. Didn't have too much time to talk about the chicken clergy. But uh, we're going to finish up this part today. Because, <laughs> boy, when you're talking about the chicken clergy, there's a lot to talk about. Lots of chicken clergy. First of all, we see that chicken clergy stay quiet. You, you can look in chapter 2, verse 6, and you'll see uh, what the prophet's talking about there. He says, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So there's a presumption. And uh, what is happening in the southern kingdom, which is supposed to be the kingdom of God, uh, the, even the, the preachers are quiet. Uh, and they say, don't prophesy. They look at the book and say, oh, don't bother about the book. It looks like it's saying that, but it doesn't really say it. You can find all kinds of examples of this, even in the lifetime of people here in this room when the conservative evangelical churches were promoting desegregation for decades and decades and decades and injustice. And there didn't seem to be one word against it. And the clergy were quiet. Why? Because they feared the lay people. And because they themselves were enjoying the privileges of being in the elite class. Decade upon decade upon decade, you wonder, could the churches even have been Christian? It was so bad. On the other hand, you can look at the more secular Protestant churches of today who look in the Bible and see the standard on sexual morality. And for decades and decades, they promote and sanction abortion and, and sanction homosexual marriages. These are churches that do this. You think, can they even be Christian? Sometimes you wonder. I'm not sure they can on either score. I'm not sure that some of the conservative churches in the South were actually Christian. I'm not sure that some of the secular Protestant churches today are actually Christian. I don't know. It sure doesn't look like it to me. This kind of stuff goes on. Why? Because the clergy are chicken. They won't stand up. Why? They'll lose their jobs. And what God is saying to the prophets is, well, let's go ahead and lose your job then in order to get the job done I've given you to do. And, of course, we know from our study of the prophets, that it's not really the clergy that are the prophets. It's the Christians who are the prophets. You're the prophet. Who can shut your mouth? Who can keep you quiet? How much do you have to be intimidated in order to just squirrel away over in the corner and cover yourself up and pretend not to know the truth? How much intimidation does it take with you? Well, watch out. God judges People's wicked intentions, including their cowardice. And then they even distort God's character. You see that in verse 7. Uh, is the Spirit of the Lord angry? You hear people say all the time, well, you know, these people, some of these Christians, you know, they, they worship a God who gets angry. I just don't believe in a God like that. Well, fine, you don't believe in Him. The God you believe in doesn't exist. How's that? That's what the clergy were doing. They were just trying to soothe everybody. God's not angry with you. Well, God does get angry. And He gets angry with His people sometimes. And a faithful prophet like yourself will be aware of that in the appropriate moments will have a theology that backs it up. They were ripping off the poor in verse, verses 7 through 9. They strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care like men running from battle. You drive the women of my people, verse 9, from their pleasant homes. They were taking advantage of widows. They defile the people in verse 10. Uh, uh, the place is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. And then they give the people what they deserve. You say, you know, I, these preachers, they really are cowards. Well, you get what you deserve. That's what God is saying to his people. He's, he's, first of all, critiquing the clergy. In that case, the prophets. And then he's saying, it's because of you all. You're the ones who are intimidating them. And you hire pastors like that. You get what you deserve. So God gets really, really angry with those who are supposed to be his spokesmen, who distort his word 
out of trying to preserve their own lives or their own welfare or their own comfort or convenience. And believe me, he notices it. He wants his word to go forth, not only from the clergy, but he wants it to go forth from all the prophets who are the people who are followers of Christ because Christ is prophet, priest, and king, and he makes his people prophet, priest, and king. Well, that's our job is to be an honest person in the workplace and to speak forth the truth wherever we go. That's finding your voice as a prophet with a little p uh, in the workplace. And we might do as we do in the workplace and say, well, how do we do? What happens if we have an evaluation? Somebody who really knows our performance on these things, what happens if they evaluate us? Well, you know, there are three things you can do when you evaluate. Uh, You can train someone uh, who's not doing very well. You can transfer them into a new job, or you can terminate them, right? Those are the three things that come out of evaluation. How do you think you and I would do? seems to me we're headed for termination. <laughs> you know, if, if we're measured up to the standard of the Scriptures, we don't look so good. But the good news is, if you look at the last two verses that we're to study last week, we'll see in verses 12 and 13 this amazing statement. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel and bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. Look at that word remnant. The remnant of Israel in verse 12. God not only notices all these things about us, but he also has his eye on the remnant. He gathers them. Who are these remnant? Well, you know, within every period of Israel's history, within every period of the church history, when we've been at our worst, there's always been somebody faithful. There's always been somebody who loved the Lord. There's always been someone who kept their eyes on him. And believe me, no matter what situation you're in at work, I don't care how chaotic or corrupt it may be, when you are keeping yourself faithful to the Lord, not perfectly, but the trajectory of your life is to serve Him, believe me, He's got His eye on you. And He does preserve His remnant. He gathers them as one flock. He'll bring us all together. He says a horde, a huge number of people. You may feel like a minority of one where you are right now. You may feel feel as though the whole world is against you. But one day, you'll be brought together as God's faithful people together. He delivers us. He goes before us. He rules over us. This text is so dramatically different from everything that's gone before it in these two chapters, that many scholars say, Micah couldn't have written that. (laughs) It's just so out of accord. It doesn't fit in with anything he's been saying. He's been giving us these thundering judgments. And what's this about God is going to save us anyway? Where does that come from? Some scholars say Micah didn't write it. Somebody inserted that. Well, that's because they don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is startling. When you get your evaluation form, and you look at it, I mean, even after today, I mean, you're going to get an F. I'm going to tell you that. You're going to get an F. Because your thoughts, you're going to think about some woman, you're going to undress her with your eyes as she walks by, you're going to say some ugly thing to somebody, you're probably going to do something bad. You're going to get an F because perfection is the standard. At the end of the day, you're going to hear God say, I love you and I'm taking care of you and I want to gather you to myself. You say, what sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. That's the grace of God's gospel. And you, and you may say, well, if that's the way it is, why would I be motivated to go out tomorrow and live for him? Because of the amazing grace of the gospel. And that's just the point. We don't go out tomorrow and get motivated because we're, we're afraid God's going to zap us. That is a paradigm of fear and guilt. No, we go out tomorrow because we were assured that even in the light of yesterday's failures, he still loves us. He's still committed to us. He's still faithful to us. And how in the world could I be faithless to him when he's been so faithful to me? That's the motive of the believer. You've got to get into that paradigm because that's where the power is. The power for your ethical life, the power for your relationships, the power for your enjoyment in life. That's where the power is. It's coming out of gratitude, not guilt. It's also the power to influence other people. People don't want to follow you into your guilt-ridden religion. How boring. How negative. How to take just sap the joy out of life is to be motivated by guilt. And some Christians just are so miserable, and they may as well be saying to the world, why don't you come over here and be miserable with me? And that's what most evangelism is. I'm miserable, come be miserable with me. But people who know they are saved by the grace of God alone 
are people who are full of joy. And people are drawn to joy because they're drawn to God. So you can see this startling, very arresting conclusion to this first of three rounds of prophecies in Micah. has this thundering judgment against all wicked associations, all wicked intentions. And then God says, I've got my eye on you and I love you. So we're properly warned by the judgments, but we are duly encouraged by the salvation that is offered in, in Christ. Now, that is last week. I was sorry we ran out of time last week and didn't get to finish it. We're going to move on to chapters 3 through 5 today. And we're looking at the topic of God preserving this faithful remnant. And I want us to look at this cycle again. And it's the typical prophetic cycle of issuing judgments that will normally come true in the short term, the promise of salvation that's coming through in the long term. But of all the prophecies we'll study, uh, with the exception of Jonah, the reluctant prophet, here we have a prophet who was not so reluctant. He was following the Lord's will, and actually people listened to him, as we said last time. And it's in this passage that we'll see the people listening. Let's look and see what it is about this passage that makes people want to listen. And you'll see at the beginning of chapter 3 the word listen again. And, of course, we've seen that is the initial word that introduces a new round of prophecies. If you look at verse 2 in chapter 1, he says, Hear, O peoples, listen, O earth. And here again in chapter 3, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob. And, of course, you get it again in chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. So here we have the second round of prophecy. Listen, you leaders of Jacob. You rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? That's a word mishpat we studied some weeks ago. You who hate good and love evil. There's a definition of the the base corruption of the human heart is that we hate what is good and we love what is evil. Now, look at this. Who tear the skin for my people, skin and people. And the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh. Strip off their skin. And break their bones in pieces. Who chop them up like meat for the pan. Like flesh for the pot. Now how would that be if someone described your work day like that today? (laughs) That's the way you were dealing with people. Then they will cry out to the Lord. That is the leader's. But he will not answer them. People think God, you know, God's so gracious. He always answers prayer. No, he doesn't either. He doesn't always answer prayer. Sometimes he holds his nose and covers his eyes and stuffs up his ears. He doesn't want to hear one blooming word. Why? Because of their rank hypocrisy. Their insincerity in calling out to him. So look what he says. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide from them. He will hide his face from them. Because of the evil they have done. <laughs> How's that picture? Dear Lord, I have a prayer to make. And God's going, <laughs> that's the way it is sometimes. Because we see in these, this whole chapter, God hates lying, cheating, and stealing, and we do a lot of it. In these first four verses, we've seen the leaders have become virtually cannibalistic. You want to talk about their business practices? You may well just talk about cannibalism. They're eating people. Like they, they're treating people like they would a cow that they're tearing up to eat for meat. That's exactly the way they, that's what they think of people. They're to be used and eaten and just devoured for their purposes. God sees that and he hates it. And he hates it when, especially when it comes through lying, cheating, and stealing, which it was, it was in this case. And I'm saying here, we do a lot of it. And, uh, that just as they were doing a lot of it and God noticed it, it was a judgment against the entire nation. Let me show you something that you probably have already seen. Pete Marwick's study that was done, oh, maybe three years ago. And in the one year that they studied, they found this. 76% of companies surveyed experienced fraud in their organization over the past 12 months. 76%. I think that was 02 maybe. Could have been 01. That's enormous. 76%. So the stuff that you get in the Wall Street Journal... Uh, and all the fraud cases and so on, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are just the big ones. Those are the big, fat cannibals. But there are a bunch of little cannibals just running around all over the place, and they're in your companies. They're where, where you work. 
It's happening all the time. And you're not surprised, probably, because you know how pervasive it is. You know how you have to watch that cash register, how you have to watch the books, because people have been taught to cheat, lie, steal. The median cost of this is $200,000 per episode or per company. $200,000. And you add it up in our country, and it's costing us $100 billion per year just for the stuff that's going on in Micah chapter 3. That makes God angry. It kind of makes me angry because you're paying for it every time you purchase anything in a store, every time you pay taxes. You're paying for all that, for all the lawsuits that have to be uh, litigated uh, against these people and for the stock market where in one year, wasn't it, didn't we lose $7 trillion in one year in the stock market? Just basically from fraud and people losing confidence in the marketplace. And all, all we have to have is one big episode like that to understand that an entire economy is built on trust, which is built on ethics, which is built on religion. It really is. It has to do with your core values. And you can't have an economy without honesty. It sounds kind of self-serving, but and it is self-serving. It's also self-serving that you have favor with God. And regardless of how it affects the economy and your neighbor and those who are paying taxes and paying for products at the marketplace. It affects our relationship with God and his and his stance toward our whole nation. God does take a stance toward nations. If there's one thing that's clear in the prophets, certainly he takes a stance with regard to his church and the nation of Israel in those days. And he takes a stance you can see in here against Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. He takes stands against countries and he'll take one against us. And he already is. Uh, it's been interesting, hasn't it, for those of you who've been able to catch a, a glimpse of What's going on in the Samuel Leto uh, uh, inquiry with the Judiciary Committee? You know, I was thinking the other day, if I was sitting where Judge Alito is sitting, I just want to say one time to maybe a choice uh, senator, Senator, has anyone ever told you that you look like the back end of a horse? Uh, I mean, I just, I just, I love, you know, of course, he'd never get, of course, appointed, but I think it'd be worth it, you know, just to... Uh, and what you see is people who in their political careers have often shown they have very low morals, the morals of a horse uh, or the back end of a horse, uh, asking these questions that sometimes have nothing to do with the real life of the person involved, promoting their political agendas and just trying to keep someone out of office whose political or a judicial philosophy they don't like. Uh, and you see corruption everywhere. It's not just in politics and business. It's in, it's in the clergy as well. And, um, you know, I just I think. If you have a pastor who's been sleeping with his wife only for the past 20 years, you ought to have a party and just celebrate it. We're going home to the right bed, unfortunately, uh, because people drop right and left. I'm always amazed uh, at how, how weak we can be. And I'm amazed at how weak Christian businessmen can be when the majority of them proclaim, uh, profess to be Christians. The interesting thing is, if you look at, you, you business guys, I think I'm hammering you too hard. Hey, look, I'm just preaching the text, okay? Uh, college students who major in business are more likely to cheat than any other students. I, I don't know. What's going on here? Uh, it's, there's an ethos out there. There's something that's being taught or being conveyed in some way that this is the way you do business. This is what shrewdness is. This is what success is. Somehow, that's what you're conveying. And college freshmen who major in your major, if you're a businessman, seem to be the most likely to cheat. If you take MBA graduates, uh, they're absolutely unaffected by any religion or business ethics course. Believe me, it makes no difference whatsoever. All, all the difference it makes for MBA students who take ethics courses is to kind of figure out what the rules are. You know, to kind of figure out when the referee's going to throw the flag so that when he, I'll, I'll know that when I do that, he has to be looking the other way. That's about all you get out of an ethics course or a religion course. It has absolutely no impact on MBA students. The biggest factor uh, that when, when studies have been done and they'll, they'll find out the lifestyle of an MBA graduate and they try to find the biggest determinant to ethical behavior, guess what it has to do with church attendance? If a person goes to church regularly, that's the biggest indicator uh, of their ethical behavior. Uh, and I know in the marketplace you can't ask somebody if they go to a, a Christian church, but if you knew that, uh, the odds are, no guarantee, believe me, uh, 
<laughs> in fact, if they tell you before you find it out, they're the least ethical of them all. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, here's a test uh, for finding out an honest man. If he tells you he is, he's not. Uh, and so watch out for that. Uh, and the thing that concerns me is that those in their 20s are the most impressionable. So what you find is that it's the influence of, you know, an external influence is most often happening to those men who are in their 20s. Now, gentlemen, most of you aren't in your 20s. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I mean, we were looking at halftime a minute ago, and I was thinking, you know, some of you are pretty late in the fourth quarter, if you don't know the truth of the matter. <laughs> but uh, some of you are in your 20s. Uh, some of you are in your 30s. And some of you are still in business. And you're, you're getting close to the end of your business career. Uh, would you make note of this? What, when a 20-year-old comes into your environment, are you aware of how vulnerable they are? Can you, can you remember that far back how intimidated you felt when you walked into a business environment? You didn't know the environment very well. You didn't know the business very well. You didn't know the people very well. And you weren't even sure you were cut out for this. And you're very vulnerable at that point. If you are in your 20s, I just want to tell you, you are in a vulnerable position. And you need to have an older guy either in, the, in that workplace or another workplace, who's going to help you. And you older guys, you need to be aware of offering yourself to 20-year-olds. It's just amazing how people will go into environments. And, and I'll hear all the time, no one told me how to do anything. Nobody helped me. It's one of the most lonely experiences. And somehow we think this is the way to make them tough. You know, just let them do it on their own. Yeah, tough and crooked. That's what you want to do. Leave them on their own. Let them just come under all the influences that are in the world that Pete Mark is, is describing. And you're sitting on the sidelines. I don't know what you're doing. Are you thinking about this? How you're going to rear up another generation of men who do take honesty seriously, and whether they're Christians or not. There's an, there's an ethos that has to be created by you. Those of you in the medical field, there are all kinds of medical ethical questions. Who is really going to train these guys and these women? Is it going to be medical school? Well, they'll take a course in medical ethics, and it'll be quickly forgotten. My friend... Uh, who is uh, chairman of the Cox Building at, uh, in Boston at uh, Mass General, told me that when he was going through with his students and he would ask an ethical question, and, and my friend happened to be a Christian, uh, he, he would say inevitably the answer he got had to do with legal precedents. And they were all, the Harvard students were all real quick. They could cite, just like Samuel Alito, they could give you the, all the cases and tell you the precedents that led up to that medical decision. And my friend was just saying, where is real thinking? It's gone. Everybody's just protecting their butts. All they're doing is getting the legal precedence, what they could be arrested for. No one's really thinking what is good, what is right, what's worth laying your life down for. Where are they going to learn that? Medical school? No. They're going to learn it from you, the ones of you who are physicians already. And they're going to come alongside and see how you run your practice and how you do your business. Same thing with the lawyers. That's how they're going to learn it. They're going to get it in the place of work. That's where your influence is. Uh, I, I know we had this thing on halftime. I hope some of you can go to this because I think uh, whether you're like myself, I mean, halftime was, I don't know how many minutes ago in my third quarter that was, but that was back there sometime. But nonetheless, these are good questions to be asking about halftime. You come to a certain place in your life and you're thinking, you know, with what experience I have and knowledge I have and passions and interests I have, what am I going to do? And a lot of times people are just encouraged you need to switch your career. Get into full-time ministry somewhere. Well, some of you have done that. It's great. But I don't think that's the answer. I really don't think it's the dominant answer at all. Here's what I think halftime is about. You get to a certain point when you've been going up the ladder and you realize, well, you know, been there, done that, uh, of limited value. So you have enough income maybe, and you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? Hey, look, take halftime. And start asking the question. Instead of my trying to survive in my environment, why don't I change my environment? And some guys who are leaving the Pete Marwicks and, and the Morgan Keegans and First Tennessee and other places and, and doing the, the, the ministry thing, that's fine. But why don't you stay in a Morgan Keegan? Why don't you stay in your law firm as a senior guy? 
And why don't you think about the 30-year-old who's just getting out of law school and what kind of environment he's coming into? And why don't some of you and Morgan Keegan, whose guys are working 80 hours a week right out of undergraduate school with a business degree, teach them that's not the way to live life? And why don't you take on the market that's squeezing the last ounce of a person's energy when they're in the most vulnerable state they could be in? Why don't you take that one on? And why don't you take your halftime, now that you have influence, people will listen to you and not think you're a kook. And why don't you use your influence to change the very business environment you're in? Why don't some of you who are in the medical profession who find that the hospitals and medical practices are being corrupted and sometimes they're being influenced to do certain things that may be legal but they're not ethical, they don't promote life, they don't promote the patient, and patient care has almost gone out the window, and people now are clicking people through in seven-minute segments, hardly having time to hear their story and to help them with their medical lives. Why don't you take that on at halftime? You've got some, now some leverage, some extra time. Why don't you engage yourself where you are and let's deal with Micah chapter 3 for heaven's sakes. And let's take the influence we have as men who are leaders in this community and go do something with it. I think that's what God is saying. He notices all this stuff. And there's some leaders. You notice the word leader. He starts with the leaders. And if you're near halftime, you'd be one of them. And he starts with us. What are you doing? Have you examined your discipline, whatever it is? And have you asked yourself, is there a Christian field of discourse even in this discipline? Does a Christian, can a Christian even make sense out of this discipline? Has anyone tried to describe how to live a Christian life in this discipline? And has this discipline come under the rule of Christ where I work? I'm not talking about evangelism right now. I'm talking about ethics. That's what we're called to. Because why? We're prophets. Every single one of us. We have a message to bear. We've got a voice. We've got an angle on things. We have a sense of reality. Let's go into the reality that really is out there. Let's bring God's reality to it. Let's at least see it the way He does. Let's at least be able to go home and cry about it when we get there. Let's at least learn how to lament. You know, Jewish people are great at lamenting. Of course, they have a whole book in the Old Testament. Lamentations. Here's how you lament. Christians, especially American Christians, aren't very good at lamenting. We like to be happy. We need to learn to lament when things are out of accord with God's will. And we look at this stuff, see these people who are vulnerable, and sometimes we say, you know, it's just really too bad. It really is. You know, things, things ought not to be that way. There ought to be a law against that. Well, laws aren't going to change it. People are going to change it. Leaders are going to change it. And laws, as any lawyer here knows will follow the behavior of the people. Laws don't lead the behavior of the people. They describe the behavior of the people in the past. Those are the laws you have. So don't look to the law. Look to people. Look to yourself. Look to the power of God in your life. What is a businessman to do? The first thing I think we've got to do is order our private world. Because you realize that your morality over here on this side, is coming from a system of ethics, which is coming from a theology, that is, who is God and what is truth, which is coming from your worship, your religion, your ultimate commitments. That is where the morality in the marketplace comes from. It comes from this. So, first of all, get your own head straight. We all believe something. Sometimes we just don't know quite how to articulate it. Why don't you start articulating it and understand where your values your values here that are describing your behavior, once you figure out where that's supposed to come from and check it out. See if it's in the Micah 3 category or, or whether it's in the, the Matthew 5 through 7 category, the Sermon on the Mount. Figure out which category we're in. So order your private world. Your, your life in the business place, in the marketplace, is going to come out of your pores. It's just going to come out intuitively. You can't mechanically go through every decision. It comes out of intuitions. So you've got to develop your intuitions and get your private life in order. Secondly, you want to integrate your private and your public worlds. And this is very difficult. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't go to your boss and say, you need to hire me because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That's not the way to do it, is it? But there is a way to integrate. And you can say, you know what? You might want to hire me because I have a habit of not stealing. <laughs> I believe in that value. I, I, I'll seek to tell the truth. And when I don't, I hope that I'll be honest with you and tell you that I didn't and, and make up for it. 
There's how you describe it. There's a Christian. There's a Christian ethic that down deep underneath is coming from a theology and a religion. And that's how you integrate it. You don't have to be an evangelist in order to integrate private and public life. But it needs to be integrated. And the biggest problem in business ethics is that guys are living out what we call a dual morality. They have one morality at home and one morality in the marketplace. You need to finish that out today and just leave that right at your table. Don't take that out the door with you. It stinks. God hates it. It's not worth living a life like that. Let's have a single morality, not a dual morality. There's one morality. As one person wrote, one of you gave me a book that says, uh, there is no such thing as business ethics. There's only ethics. Why should we talk about business ethics? Let's integrate the private and the public worlds. Accept your responsibility to all your stakeholders. What happens when people in the business place or in your law or medical firm or teaching school, wherever you are, what happens when your life gets out of whack, you are flattering one stakeholder and taking advantage of another stakeholder and stripping them naked. Or as Micah said, you're stripping the skin off and cooking him. So you're taking advantage of some stakeholder in order to put yourself in a good position with another stakeholder, what we have to do is to take all the stakeholders and be responsible for all of them. There, there's some of them. There may be more. Those occur to me. And you are equally responsible for all those people. And your, your dealings have to be honest and mutually beneficial with all of them. So you don't take advantage of a patient, obviously, in order to feed your own family. You serve that patient, and you should be able to feed your own family by that. But you should also serve that patient and think from that patient's perspective. I was one of my really good friends who's now deceased. He was an elder in the first church I served and a surgeon. And, you know, if, if, you, if you're real high on the sympathy scale, you're not going to make it as a surgeon. I mean, you know, you've got to be, be able to see blood and guts and hear people moan and groan and, and not go home and carry that burden. I mean, you... You've got to be able to control your emotions and your, and your own affections and sympathy. I understand that. Pastors can't be off the chart either or we get wiped out emotionally. So if you find someone who's just highly sympathetic, they probably are not going to make it very well as a pastor. Well, surgeons probably are a little lower than we are, aren't they? It was so funny. Well, it wasn't funny. Well, it was. I admit it. Um, my, my surgeon friend had to have really major abdominal surgery. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... This, is, this didn't cause his death, so I'm not laughing about his death. Although I could do that because he's a Christian, so it's, it's funny. He's in heaven rejoicing. But he had serious abdominal surgery, and I went in to see him. Poor old David, he was just sitting on the bed, and he said, oh. He said, God just paid me back for all those decades when I didn't sympathize with my patients. <laughs> you know, it, it is interesting when you really... Put yourself in somebody else's shoes and really think it through. What is it like for them? That's what it means to be responsible for all your stakeholders. Can you always please all your stakeholders? Well, of course not. Uh, Are they all going to be equally served? Of course not. But they should all have someone who is taking equal interest in their interest. That's what it means Uh, to be just. That's what mishpat means, among other things. And then we might want to look at what we are to do. We're not only to order our private world and integrate private and public worlds and accept responsibility for all of our stakeholders, but let me just say, you need to stake out your position. What I have found in uh, my brief years in business, only five and a half years or so, and as I've found in talking with so many of you, is that um, if you stake out your position earlier, life is a whole lot easier if people know what your values are. And then after they know what your values are, they may think you're a prude and they may not give you all the business opportunities that you might have had because they don't want to work with you. But they'll stop messing with you. They'll stop messing with you once you stake your position. Because down deep inside, they know they're wrong. And you're, you stand for the truth and the light. And they don't want their darkness to come into your They don't want you to shed light on their darkness by even knowing about it. What you find is once you make a couple or three key decisions that mark you out from the rest of the group, 
your life is a whole lot easier. And people don't understand that. One reason is they don't want to be left out of anything. And so they won't make that decision. They try to play both sides of the fence. And you're going to be torn apart for the rest of your life. You're going to have both people coming to you, trying to tug on you and get you in their camp. Why don't you go ahead and choose sides right now? If you haven't been choosing sides, why don't you choose today? And if you need to tell anybody how your behavior is going to uh, change, just go ahead and stake out your position. Don't do it in a judgmental way. Don't do it in a self-aggrandizing way. Maybe the best way is just wait till the next decision comes along. Just make a good decision. Stake out your ground. You need to create an ethical ethos. How do you create an ethical ethos? That poor little fly. Um, you, first of all, cast a vision. Now, this is for those of you who are in leadership positions. We're talking about leaders here. You cast a vision for your department and how you're going to operate. Once again, you don't have to evangelize people. You don't have to take unnecessary advantage of, of the company's airwaves to promote your religious perspective. You can just simply say, hey, look, I have a dream. <laughs> and my dream is that we're going to be fair with each other. We're going to be honest with each other. Our customers are going to be glad that we are serving them if they really know the truth. Our stakeholders are going to know, our stockholders are going to know that we are out to promote them. This community is going to be glad that our office is here on this corner because we're going to be an asset. That's the vision I've got. And you just let people know what your vision is. You emphasize values rather than rules. I mean, I, I know this myself, even in the church sometimes. You know, we have to have policies and rules. But, but doggone it, if you have to have a whole bunch of rules, something's wrong. Somebody is not getting it or you don't have it. And that is, what are your core values? And once, once people see those values in you and you describe those values, your rule book ought to get thinner, not fatter. So in a real ethical environment, you have a pretty thin rule book. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, this may be a controversial name to, to some of you, uh, Robert E. Lee, Civil War. But uh, what you have to realize about Lee in those very controversial times is that whereas uh, Grant uh, did not release his slaves until after the war, Lee released his long before the war. And Lee was, a, I think, a, a Christian man. He chose to, to fight on the side of Virginia because that was his commonwealth. And he believed that his first commitment was to the magistrate of his commonwealth. It was a different view of federalism in those days. His first commitment was to the magistrate of Virginia, the commonwealth of Virginia, and he must be in obedience there rather than to the president. So he chose to fight for his, his beloved uh, homeland of the commonwealth of Virginia. And uh, uh, Lee, uh, where am I going with this story? Uh, oh, yes, Lee... Halftime was a long time ago. In fact, I, I can't even remember halftime. It's, uh, it's gone on my, on my radar screen. Uh, Lee, as you know, was offered uh, to uh, be the president of an insurance company in New York after the war and paid a handsome salary, and he turned it down. And then they said, well, could we just use your name? $50,000 a year. Think about it. Uh, late 1860s, $50,000 a year. And he turned it down. And he said, I won't take advantage of our nation's greatest tragedy and use it for income for myself. And so he, as you know, became the president of what was then uh, Washington uh, College, Washington University. And uh, his wife, of course, is an invalid. Here's a man who is on the field for five years. And his wife then was an invalid. And think about his sex life. I mean, there was no sex life. And this man kept himself uh, kept himself pure through all those years. And uh, he, he was a very uh, charming man. The women loved him. They would gather around him. He was very fluent in literature, and, and he could talk women's talk. Uh, he was good. Um, he was never unfaithful to his wife. And as furthermore, uh, when she was an invalid, he, he just simply served her, and he wheeled her around all over the campus at WNL. And um, he had one rule. WNL, well, it became Washington Lee later. Washington College had one rule. You must live as a Christian gentleman. There you go. And you had, you had one example. You want to know what a Christian gentleman is? Look in the president's office. That's all you need. That's really all you need. You need to live like a Christian gentleman yourself. And then you can just tell other people, look, it, it, you know, 
That's the rule. Just take the Ten Commandments. Now, you may not be able to post them down the courthouse, but you can post them in, in the mindset of the people in your workplace and just say, that's what we're going to live by. And so then people can do their own, they can do their own thinking, their own case, their own casualty law from those values. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have policies and procedures. We've got to. I mean, if you don't, you're going to end up in the slammer. So you have to have policies and procedures, and you have to honor the ethical code of your industry and all the rest. I'm just talking about the core values of, of an organization coming out of the heart. Tell success stories and reward victories. When people do something that is honorable and it costs you, I mean costs you, costs you a customer. And it's not because your, your salesman was a geek, but it's because he actually did something right and good that you want to promote. You be sure that success story gets told and he gets honored and rewarded for it. So, yeah, you have commissions on the amount he sells, but be sure you've got a commission on people who are doing what is valuable in the workplace. And then, of course, you anticipate your common challenges. You've got all these common challenges. These things, you know, blows my mind, all the things you all have to deal with. But you have to think through which of this list affects you the most. And you think through the scenarios. You don't want to go to work. And I'm talking to you young guys. You don't know the first time you hit the marketplace but after you've been there a while, you begin to understand, oh, yeah, people do churn accounts around here. Yeah, they'll do that to get some commissions. All that. Now, how, how am I going to fight that? You can fight it. I know people who fight it. I know people who don't churn accounts. And they'll tell their boss they won't churn an account. Or they'll use other less inflammatory language. But they have the customer's interest at heart. And that comes through real clearly. They've thought through the scenario before they get there. So where, whatever realm you're in, think through the scenarios that you can think through before you get there. Now you're ready. And now under pressure as a young man, you don't have to be thinking, oh, boy, boy. No, you've already decided. And you may say it with a trembling voice, but you've already decided. And you've already decided you'd rather be fired than not to take that position. You've already counted the cost. You've already started to put some savings in your account that will eventually help you feel free to get fired. And that's, one, that's one reason that the advice about having a year's salary in the bank is a good idea. It's not just so they might, because they might fire you. No, it's because you might want to get yourself fired. And you need to be ready to get fired. If you can't do that, you can't live this life I'm talking about. If you have to have your job, you can't do what I'm talking about. If you have to have Jesus, you can do what I'm talking about. If he's the only thing you've got to have, you can do this. So it's a rugged, tough mindset I'm talking about that will enable men to go out there and change their environment from what it so often is. Now, I just I want to close this section of talking about business with this. No cramming allowed. Don't cram your religion down their throats. It's, you have to be careful and, and you have to respect other people's space and their religious freedom and all the rest. I'm not saying don't evangelize. I'm just saying, obviously, if you're supervising someone, you don't want to confuse their performance evaluation with whether they become a Christian or not. You don't want them to think that they can please you as a supervisor by adopting your religion. You know what you're doing? All you're doing is promoting hypocrisy when you do that. So you've got to be careful not to do anything manipulative. When people ask about what you're, where you're coming from, what your values are, you should be ready to tell them why, where your prophetic voice comes from. It comes from Micah. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the God of the Bible. It comes from Jesus Christ. You should be prepared to say that. So don't cram your religion down other people's throats. Even You can create a vision and a value-based organization without cramming religion down people's throats and without shutting your mouth so that you don't know how to talk about religion. There's a subtle distinction here. But also, no cramming allowed the other way either. Don't let them cram their religion down your throat. And believe me, gentlemen, they've got one. So why should you, at the same time you're trying to honor their religious space, not insist that they honor your religious space? Why should you not have enough respect for yourself to begin with, but ultimately have enough respect for God and His truth that you just simply allow them to squeeze you into their mold? into their religious mold, and they have a religion. They may not be able, very good at articulating it. Sometimes we're not very good at articulating ours, but we've got one. So no cramming allowed either way. 
Now, this is not easy business. I understand this. But I believe this is the challenge if we take Micah 3 and put it in our own terms and in our own workplace. So the first thing we see in those first four verses is that God certainly notices and God hates the cannibalistic behavior of leaders. He hates prophets who can be manipulated by money. This is a very dangerous thing for those of us in churches like Second Presbyterian Church who pay their pastors very well, embarrassingly well. And for a church like the one I belong to, and I suppose yours is like this too, it's a very nice church. We have very nice people here. When I first came to Second Presbyterian 11 years ago, uh, I first of all, of course, uh, met with the leaders. But eventually, I wanted to meet with all the, the women, especially the senior women. We probably had 100 of them in that room across the hall uh, at our Women in the Church thing. And, and they're nice women. And you know what I told them? I said, ladies, I want you to pray for me because my greatest fear is if the Lord keeps me here for 20 years is that I'm going to mess this thing up. <laughs> because you all are so nice. You're nicer than I am. And I'm afraid you're going to be like me. <laughs> Scared the jabbers out of me. I want to be like you. It's a nice church. It's a generous church. Generally speaking, Memphis is a nice and generous and genteel place. So it's very easy just to be nice. It's very easy not to want to offend nice people who are being nice to you. That's exactly what was happening in Micah 3. The prophets were cannibalizing the poor. I'm sorry, the businessmen were cannibalizing the poor, taking advantage of them, trampling on them. And the preachers were real buddies with the rich people. Really good buddies. They were the rich people's chaplain. They took care of the rich people. Did all their funerals and all their baptisms and weddings, I'm sure. And said really good things about how high-minded the business community was. And really was buddy-buddy with them. Never said a word to them about skinning the poor. Never said a word to them. Why? Because they won't make them mad. Afraid they'd lose their job. Afraid they'd have to go out and just make it on their own. i tell you what. If you want to have a prophetic voice, whether you're a clergy bird or you're out there, you better be ready to be fired. Uh, if you're not, you, you can't really have much of a voice. Those of you in Christian ministry, I'm not talking about being mean to people. And I was dead serious when I talked about I want to become like those senior women in our church. I do want to learn how to be a gentleman. And they're better at it than I am. I mean that. And you should be the most gentlemanly of all people. But you should never compromise the truth regardless of what happens to relationships with human beings. In verses 9 through 12, we see that everybody can be bought. I mean, we're talking about priests, judges, being paid off with bribes. We're talking about a whole system that's corrupt. Tennessee waltz is just a dance compared to what was going on here. But the Tennessee waltz is, a, is an example of what we're talking about. People in positions of political power are in it for themselves. The people get what they deserve. Because why? Because some of us won't run for public office. Why? Well, who wants to do that? <laughs> I mean, really, I'm so glad people like to run for public office. Shaking all those hands, giving the same old speech 1,400 times, you know, superficial conversations, trying to remember names, not paid very well, getting your name in the newspaper in the most unfavorable light, having those senators ask you stupid questions at the judiciary. I mean, you know, it's just not a very happy life. And some people, the only people who will run are those who will run for money. So we can take blame ourselves. We're not encouraging our 20-year-olds to get into politics. We need to do that. We need to encourage our 20-year-olds to get into ministry and politics and other public, uh, forms of public service that maybe don't pay so well. What happens in a commercial environment, a professional environment, is that you all grade the value of careers. And frankly, if one of your kids says to you, I want to be a school teacher, some of you are pretty sad about that. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if they're really bright, good leader, they want to be a school teacher, what a, what a horrible waste of a great career. I mean, honestly, some people would think that way. 
With me? I'm doing a backflip. Praise the Lord. We need leaders, people of character, men of character especially, in this school system. That's how it's going to change. We need principals and teachers and coaches who love the Lord and who are bright and leadership-oriented to be in public service in places that don't pay very much. We need politicians who are bright and principled and people who are gifted at what they do. And we need preachers who can think and who can communicate and who can connect and who can lead. We need people like this. They don't get paid very much by comparison. So everybody gets bought off. The whole system with this increasing capital is polluting everybody. We go from one house that we thought was fine, 2,500 square feet, and you get a little bit more money and you realize, well, my, most of my friends have 3,500 square feet. If you're a little bit older and get, have plenty of money, most of my friends actually have about 6,000 square feet. Well, if I want to be you know, friends with these people, I guess I, I need a house of 6,000 square feet. And the whole system is just built on avarice. And we're losing our minds. We're losing our vision. We're losing our idea of what life and leadership is all about. Everybody is bought off by money. That's what happens at the end of chapter 3. And that is where we're going to stop. Because I like being behind. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for the pain that... I feel, and every one of us feels, who looks seriously at Malachi chapter 3 because of the searching judgments of the light of Your Word. And none of us is unscathed, for none of us is perfect. But Lord, uh, would You please protect us today from self-condemnation? Would You please protect us from despair? Because you are gathering your remnant. You are gathering your church. You love your church. And we have already won the battle. It's guaranteed for us. And so we pray, Lord, that with a sense of triumph and assured victory, we will leave this room inspired to be men of character, no matter where we are, no matter what the circumstances are. Men who are willing to die if we have to in order to please you. Men who love our neighbor so much that we would try in every way not to offend them. Except for when truth is required. Make us men of tact and diplomacy. Men who know how to influence other people who may disagree with us in some way. So that we, Lord can be world transformers so that Memphis will become a different place so that discrimination based on race and gender and age has no more place with us so that taking advantage of one stakeholder or another has no more place with us so that passively allowing all kinds of evil to go on will have no more place with us in those realms where we have influence. Because we're aware that you care and you are a gracious God. You have saved us and delivered us. And we have this little moment called life on earth to honor you here, to serve you here, to demonstrate our love for you here. Help us to do it. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you.